queerness, it wasn't something that you were. It wasn't an adjective. It didn't define you. It was an ad. It was a verb. It's something that you did. It's like I am eating. You don't describe yourself as eating. That doesn't make any sense. I am sitting. It's something that you do. So to them, the whole perspective in the world, they didn't see queerness. It's not you're gay, you're bisexual, you're pansexual. They had no concept of that. It was just, I do this, I do that. And it had no defining feature. When you look at queerness, it existed, but a lot of times it wasn't written down or wasn't known as much because it wasn't defined as such. I'm George Lizos, spiritual teacher, psychic healer, and number one best-selling author. Growing up in a small and Christian community, I was judged and rejected for being gay and different. After a futile two-year attempt to change who I was born to be, I called myself a human abomination and almost took my own life. Fortunately, in my darkest moment, I saw the light and ventured on a healing journey of love, forgiveness, and spiritual awakening. Yet my dating life since hasn't always been all roses and rainbows, and my past dramas and traumas have definitely kept things spicy. Fast forward past many awkward dates and disappointing sex, I created Can't Host to challenge toxic gay stereotypes, explore the complex dynamics of gay sex and relationships, and create opportunities for healing and growth. If you're a gay guy seeking more joy, freedom, and authenticity in your sex life and relationships, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Can't Host. I'm your host, George Lizos, and today we're talking about something quite different from what you're used to. We're talking about queer sex and magic in the ancient times. So we're combining how sexuality, spirituality, and magic were practiced and perceived in the ancient world across different cultures. My guest is Tomas Prower, who's the award-winning Latinx author of books on multicultural magic and mysticism, including queer magic and warrior magic. And you can read more about Tomas below, as well as get access to his book, Queer Magic, upon which this episode is based on. As you know, I'm a spiritual teacher myself. I write books on spirituality and personal development, and I've always wanted to learn more about queer spirituality. I knew about queer spirituality within my own culture, the ancient Greek culture, and how the ancient Greeks perceived homosexuality, but I hadn't done any research into other cultures' perceptions. And what you'll find in this episode is quite surprising, because different ancient cultures had different perspectives on queerness. Specifically, in this episode, we talk about LGBTQIA plus affirming deities from various spiritual traditions, how queer people were perceived across different ancient cultures, how queer people and non-binary people identified in the ancient world, which is quite different from how we identify today. We talk about spells and rituals that were practiced in the ancient times and how we can possibly start using them as well in the present time. And we also talk about queer history. Personally, it gives me a lot of perspective knowing how long-standing some of the issues we're facing right now have been and what that can teach us about ourselves, what we're experiencing, and where we're going. If you are interested in the ancient world, and specifically the Greek spirituality and how they perceived 
queer people as well. I've recently announced my next book, my fourth book, which is called Secrets of Greek Mysticism, a modern guide to daily practice with the Greek gods and goddesses, where I dive into the cosmology, the theology, and the spirituality of the ancient Greeks. I introduce the main 12 Olympian gods, not from a mythological perspective, but from a theological perspective. And therefore, forget everything you think you know about the Greek gods and goddesses, forget all about their vices and their passions and their struggles with one another. We are talking about the gods' true essence, what their virtues and qualities are. And of course, I touch on the topic of homosexuality as well in ancient Greece. So the book is available to order on Amazon, but you can go to GreekMysticism.com to get all the details. You also get a free workshop from me to meet your guardian god or goddess when you order the book. Also, I work with people one-on-one -on -one helping gay guys work through traumas, heal their relationship with their bodies and sexuality. So if you're interested in doing some work with me, make sure to check out my website, GeorgeLizos.com. Or reach out to me on Instagram first and we can have a chat before we do a session. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode with Tomas. Let me know on Instagram how you enjoyed at George Lizos. And let's get started. Hey Tomas, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast to chat about queer magic and how queer culture and magic has been blended throughout the years, starting from the ancient times until now. You have a powerful book about that. But before we get started, I want to hear a little bit about your journey to discovering about queer magic and studying um, queer culture in ancient civilizations and how that blended with magic as well. What has been your journey? I would say my journey has been, I've always, as a queer person, you know, you never see represent, especially when I was younger, you rarely see representation. It was always hidden. You didn't know much about it. So you had to search and really find what things were. And I, and I loved it. So I would search up more and more and more. And, you know, it just facts I keep in my mind, things I remember, interesting things. But then when I got the chance to write a book, because I wrote um, the book La Santa Muerte, Unearthing the Magic and Mysticism of Death, which was a huge hit. That was my debut book. It was such a big hit that the publishing company said, okay, we know you can sell, write whatever you want now. And I was like, you know, all this facts, all this stuff from all of history, all this queerness that's been hidden, that's what I want to write about. And they're like, okay, perfect, go ahead. So then with all that information, you go back and you do the hard research. And I had lived like um, all over the world a lot. So I had contacts that I could reach out to people to verify things. Is this correct? And also access to my college's um, university text, which was very helpful. But that was the journey. It was just stuff you always learn about that you're always fascinated about. And then finally, I had the platform in which to write about it and share it. Yes, and I love that because I'm a, I'm a Greek pagan priest, so I practice the religion of my ancestors. And uh, when I went to Athens to train for it, I was just always curious, like, can I be a priest in, in this religion? And they were like, of course, <laughs> because <laughs> like gay culture was accepted in ancient Greece. And I read that section about it in your book, and I was just fascinated to learn more about it because I hasn't specifically done my research into homosexuality in ancient Greece and I was very happy to see that they it was it was something that was accepted of course it were like it wasn't the same kind of thing that we we, we know today it was a different like social dynamic right. there and we can talk about it later on but it was part of the culture and I've read through your book it was part of, of so many ancient cultures around the world so 
Let's chat a little bit about queer magic. What is queer magic and why do you think it's important for the modern LGBTQIA plus individual to know about? I think it's important because it's important to know history in general. When things get erased, people can make up their own history and usually the people in power do. So if you find out like, oh, this has existed throughout time, throughout the world, in every civilization, that, that, that is empowering. And that there were also specific spells and there are specific empowerment things of what we would use in order to protect ourselves if we need to protect ourselves and just feel stronger. But um, most importantly, it's because, you know, queer people, even throughout history, we've always been the minority. There's always a lot more heterosexual people out there, always has been. And it's interesting because you look back in history, the others, the people who were different, were always you know, shunned, but they're always shunned and they say, oh, they're different. And with queer people, if you look around, it's like, oh, they must have some magical powers because they're in touch with femininity. They're in touch with masculinity. They can go between these two worlds. Maybe they can go between our world and the spiritual world, maybe our world and the underworld. And so you have a lot long history, even to today, of a lot of queer people being seen as magical or inherently having power just because of the differentness. That is so exciting. And it's right, we've been part of history and we've been uh, underground for so many years, but it's only because we've been suppressed by patriarchy. Because when you look at ancient cultures where patriarchy was not as dominant, like LGBT like people were more accepted and they were part of the culture, as you say, they had and they were perceived to have like magical abilities. But then patriarchy came and progressively we got suppressed more and more. And that history became his story rather than her story <laughs> and therefore we we suppress that side of ourselves so let's talk a little bit about lgbt spirituality and in the ancient world has it been prevalent in most ancient cultures can you give us some examples it has you know queerness has just existed as long as humans have existed it's been there but though it's interesting because the way the way we call queerness now or lgbt that's very modern very, very modern. So different uh, cultures in the past saw things very differently. And one of the biggest ones that's the easiest to show its differentness is with ancient Greece and Rome. Because then, you know, whenever you call that up nowadays, you get all the giggles and you say, oh, all the orgies. Oh, you know, all the younger men and older men together. Oh, you know, like the epitome of queerness in the ancient world. But they saw it as very differently. To them, queerness, it wasn't something that you were. It wasn't an adjective. It didn't define you. It was an ad. It was a verb. It's something that you did. It's like saying you can't. It's like I am eating. You don't describe yourself as eating. That doesn't make any sense. I am sitting. It's something that you do. So to them, the whole perspective in the world, they didn't see queerness. It's not you're gay, you're bisexual, you're pansexual. They had no concept of that. It was just I do this. I do that. And it had no defining feature. So it's when you look at queerness, it existed, but a lot of times it wasn't written down or wasn't known as much because it wasn't defined as such. Yes, because I, I we, we see all these uh, pictures and images from ancient vessels showing like homosexual scenes, but it's not defined, it's not labeled in a specific kind of way. It's just an act that, that's done. And you can see this with the representation of the gods as well, like Apollo was in love with Hyacinthus, for example. And we have that 
homoerotic story going on as well in the mythology, but they're not defined as like they're gay or he's bisexual. It's just he was one of these lovers, like many other lovers that the god had. Now, how was queerness different across cultures? It was different. Oh, Lord, it was different across many cultures. Everyone had their own idea of what was very different. It was the it was a lot of based on acts. It was whom you have sex with, because queerness, especially in the old, you know, the older countries and the older civilizations, you have very much once the idea of property came in is probably the best way to say it. You suddenly have to make children. Because back in the olden days, they didn't have social security. They didn't have, you know, national pensions. They didn't have welfare. So you had to have children in order to really just exist in old age and be safe. If you didn't have any kids, you couldn't work the fields. They were a labor source. So in many in many countries, I got to stop saying countries, in many civilizations, um, queerness was not accepted. And it was not seen as good because if you had a child that was, you know, gay, that they wouldn't be able to have children. Therefore, you couldn't have a labor supply. You the you had less people in the clan to defend it. You also had um, less protection in old age. So it was seen as a burden. And we can go into it, but um, especially the Viking culture, the Aztec culture, they were extremely homophobic, extremely homophobic by nature before colonization really even hit them. So when we talk about queerness around the world, a lot of times it has to do with having children and the property, the inheritance of that the existence of that. But that's that's the major defining factor. It's how people define property and private property in particular. And in many theories about the, the start of patriarchy, we hear about one of the theories being the creation of property and wanting to control the children and the offsprings and, and what that entails. So would you say that was a turning point when queer spirituality shifted, where queer culture shifted in the ancient times? when property was invented. Of course, every single every single civilization is different. But would you say that is a good like turning point there in general? That that was it's a big turning point in human history for everything because once uh, once we started having private property, uh, you see the diminishment in history of females being in power, all the great goddesses, all the women in charge goes down. So anything related to femininity also goes down. So especially for um females, it, it doesn't matter what their sexuality is, they went down. For men, if they had feminine qualities, that was going down too, because it was the assertive patriarchiness of ownership of land. Because when you own a piece of land, as opposed to nomadic wanderers, you have to defend it. It's static. You have to stay there. And so a lot of masculinity was really hyped up. It's like, oh, you have to be strong to protect it. Oh, you got to be virile. You got to have more kids to defend it. But back when it, we were just wandering around from place to place, hunting and foraging, you didn't need to protect the land. So it wasn't as necessary to be so masculine and be so strong, at least the way it was propagandized. Yeah, for sure. And when it comes to magic, how was magic and sexuality, queer sexuality, how were they blended in the ancient times? It depends on what you're talking about. One of the biggest things is that um, it was really for the basic needs of everyone. Because usually when you go into magic and you start doing spell casting, there's certain correspondences things have, like certain flowers represent something, certain stones, certain directions, plants, and so forth. So it's kind of like a recipe. And so in ancient Greece, when you had the recipes or you had the magic or you had their correspondences and everything, certain things align with attracting an opposite sex lover. So you couldn't use the same thing because you didn't want that. So queer magic was important because you had to tweak essentially the ritual, the words, the ingredients of the recipe in order to make it your own. 
So it was very important, very important in order to be able to have your own type of magic. Otherwise, you couldn't find your own lover. You couldn't have your own issues that you had to deal with, your own protection, because every the recipe book was for everyone else. How interesting. Okay. I'm being quite selfish and asking about Greece and Rome, but let's go into different cultures as well. <laughs> Can you give like some more like examples of how magic was perceived in the ancient world? Like anything that like your favorite kind of magic, essentially, because you've studied so much, you've studied so many different civilizations. What's something that stands out for you and stood out for you when you first read about it? I think the biggest thing that still stands out to me, the one thing I researched that would just impacted the way I see saw things and still see the world very differently from it is if you go into uh, eastern Siberia up in modern Russia, like the very the tundras land, there is a tribe still existent called the Chuchki. In the Chuchki tribe, they had this idea of, you know, they had sorcerers, they had witches. And if you're a female witch, you had all the magical powers of femininity. And if you're, if you're a masculine sorcerer, you had all the powers of masculinity. And so someone who was identified as, you know, non-binary or both masculine and feminine, they were greatly feared. Everyone was very, very afraid of them because they were seen as having ultimate power because men feared them because they could use the masculine power and the feminine power to double down on it. When people started to really research them and ask, well, why? Why is that so fearful? They said, oh, because they have doubled the power. And when they asked the non-binary Chuchki magical people what was going on, uh, their answer was, it is a long answer, but it sums up like this. Whatever you say you are, you put yourself in a box. If I say I am gay, therefore I am not everything that is not gay. If I'm a man, then I am not everything. You, Everyone wants, nowadays especially, everyone wants to pinpoint exactly what they are. They want to be represented to the infinitesimal point of I am this, this is me. The Chuchki tribe does the exact opposite. They don't want to have any labels. And by not having any labels, they don't box themselves in. They are everything. They are the universe. They are whatever they want to be at whatever time because they refuse to be labeled, which again is very different from nowadays because nowadays everyone again wants very certain. I am, this is my gender. This is my sexuality. This is this, this is that. When There's power in that, but there's more power in not being labeled. And that still stays with me, the Chuchkis of Siberia. Ah, uh, that just like landed right there for me. Like because of all, oh, I'm think constantly thinking about gender and sexuality and sex and identity and, and what they are and how do we define ourselves and how do we not define ourselves. And you're right. Whereas labels can give you a sense of empowerment because you can feel part of a community, etc. When you at the same time rid yourself of those labels or simultaneously know that okay, I identify with this label, but at the same time I'm labelless then you open yourself up to so much more. And it's fascinating to me right now that queerness was seen as powerful in those tribes. And yet we experience so much judgment and so much discrimination today as a result of being queer. It shows the contrast between the past and the present. And of course, it all varies across time and space and it's, it's different uh, around the world. But I like the idea of, of this balance of because you're you have the masculine and the feminine and they blend in together and you own both sides that seen as powerful. And I find that in today's world, balance, although we know on paper it's something we seek, it's not what rules. Because even in politics, for example, you have it's either right or it's left. And people in the center are just left there wondering. <laughs> Whereas right. balance could be a, a nicer solution there, a more a productive solution. Now, how has queer magic, specifically magic, 
evolved through time? I wouldn't say it evolves so much as just uses the new technology that's available. Because a lot of times, magic today is very simple and it's very the same. Um, a shout out to Christopher Penzak in his book, Instant Magic. It breaks down magic at its most simple. It's like a couple few steps and you can do any magic in the world and all magic in the world is essentially based off of that and it's very true so at its core magic is magic it's just different flavorings of it that different cultures have and nowadays we have the internet to do things like if you want to build up energy or um you want to cast a spell you can go on amazon and order all your things you don't have to go out and pick things you don't have to find the you know that one woman living on the edge of town who knows things about plants it's easier. It's more accessible. And that's the, but that's also where magic goes bad nowadays because there's so much noise out there and people want you to, you know, there's clickbait. People want you to watch the YouTube videos so they can monetize it. And so they'll say whatever bowl just to make a buck or two. So it's, it's grown easier to access things, find out things. You can listen to an iPod and go ahead and build up your energy, whatever you want, see anything in the world, learn anything. You have all of human history at the palm of your hand, but a lot of it's bull now. So that's, that's where it gets really tricky. There's so much availability. We can access anything, but we need to have critical thinking and do our research and not solely depend on a, a 60 second TikTok video for our, our magical capabilities. I wrote my third book, Protect Your Light, for this reason, because I saw so many people just going out there and practicing all these spells and interacting with spirits without having the training, without mm -hmm. learning to protect their energy and navigate the spirit world and just exposing themselves to, to so much vulnerability in, in, in the spirit world. It's like getting a car and driving it and getting somewhere, but you don't know the rules. So you'll eventually have an accident. Yes. Now, let's talk about what we can learn today from ancient cultures around queer sexuality and queer spirituality. If we were to look at that culture, why would a modern person be like, okay, I want to read about this. What can I learn? I would go back to the, not to rehash it, but I would go back to um, the Siberian Chuchis and I would say, stop having so much dependence upon labels. And it's because there's, there's, again, there's a sense of community, especially if you've been shunned so much of your life, you want to belong. But if you connect, it's very scary, but if you can accept not belonging anywhere, you ironically belong everywhere and there's a modern case of it with queerness in india because india has many different genders that they recognize one of them is um the hedra and the, the we in the west it doesn't approximate but we in the west would essentially call them transgender females but to them it's a separate gender unto themselves so we have for since ancient times they've been respected they have magical powers but nowadays we have modern laws and in order to get a law passed you have to define something as this or that in order for the law to be protective of it so when india is pushing for um queer rights it does not include the hedra because the hedra are not queer because a queer if you want to say like a, like a gay person is someone who likes their own sexuality right so a man likes a man woman likes a woman so forth so to protect that in india you have to say homosexuality but the hedra are a gender unto themselves. They aren't, we see them as queer because they're not male or female. But since ancient times in India, they've been their own thing. So queer protection doesn't protect them, even though the West would see them as queer. So again, getting really down in labeling has a lot of block roads. It has a lot of things. If you open yourself up to the totality of possibilities and you don't have labels, it's extremely scary. 
but it is also extremely empowering. It is, and I, I can personally say this because I, when I started this podcast, the reason I started this podcast, that's episode one, was when I realized for many years I identified as a bottom and I just put myself into this label. I'm like, this is who I am. I'm a gay bottom until I tried topping and I liked it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what's happening here? <laughs> All my walls breaking down. And, and now I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to identify as just gay. Let's just see what's out there. And just the sometimes the idea of like a threesome with a woman involved excites me. And I'm like, okay, why not? So why just put myself into this label and just keep myself there? And when I, it was a mental shift. When I got out of that uh, strict labeling of myself, a whole new world of possibilities opened up for me. And it's so powerful indeed. And this podcast, this past year that I've been doing it, has allowed me to expand in so many different ways. And it's been as a result of having these conversations with people like you, opening up my perspective about things. And hopefully other people are doing something similar, whatever each person's journey is. In the book, you talk about different deities, LGBTQIA plus affirming deities and spirits from various mythologies, from various cultures and theologies around the world. I know, for example, from within the, the ancient Greek culture, Apollo, Hyacinthus, and Zeus have been presented as being bisexual as well. Can you share a few of those deities from different cultures as well? Because when it comes to spirituality and religion, patriarchy has taught us that God is male and that God hates gays or hates queer people. And understanding that religion hasn't always been this way is something empowering, has been something empowering for me in my journey. So I want to hear a little bit about examples of, of, of how gods and goddesses have been queer through the years. There's there's quite a number. I know um, one of them in um, India, Avalokiteshvara, and I don't speak I don't speak Hindi. So if that didn't go well, it didn't go well. It's written in the book. It, that's a, that's the fun thing about books. You can write it and not know how to fully pronounce it. But if you don't know how to spell it, but one of the interesting things is that um, they they kind of change, and it's similar to the Chinese Taoist Buddhist deity Guan Yin. It depending upon emotion is they do change. So if they feel peaceful and they feel loving, then they are represented and referred to as a woman. But if they get angry or they're trying to be protective, they suddenly turn into a male. But no one and no one who works with them sees that as very odd. It's just, oh, of course, they're changing into this. They're changing into that. And in um, sub-Saharan Africa, there's a one deity called Erinle, who's the god of male god of hunting, medicine, and so forth. But he also turns into the, the river. And when he's a river, he's a woman. And he partners with the goddess of love. Because if the love goddess herself says, I'm going to choose anyone, I'm going to choose the one god that understands women because he has been a woman and can be a woman whenever he wants. He understands me. In certain sub-Saharan African cultures, that femininity is seen as wonderful. Again, in India, Krishna is, is love. And so he has a similar story to Narcissus where he falls in love with himself in the in the pool. But um, that's seen as when you can reach Krishna consciousness of such love, everything you see, you love. You don't see the gender. You don't see the sexual. You just love them because you see their soul. But there's also um, sadder story ones, such as in, in the Aztec society, because, again, the Aztecs were extremely homophobic. It was not good to be gay there. Very bad because... It was a very warlike culture like the Vikings. And so to show femininity was bad because it wasn't militaristic. It wasn't manly. So 
queers had a very, very hard time in Aztec society. But there's this one deity who I'm, I cannot even pronounce, but it's in the book. And her name amounts to Eater of Filth. And it was literal. She'd be depicted as eating feces, as eating, you know, all the bad things in life and turning it into gold. So in the way the society was, it's she turns bad things into good things, bad times into good times, kind of a fortune deity, a forgiveness deity. But she was especially worshipped by queer people in Aztec society because they saw their own queerness as bad. They were taught it was bad from their Aztec polytheistic religion. They are bad. This deity would the eater of filth would be such highly praised and prayed to, similarly to certain evangelical Christian ones, where please take the gay away, turn my filth into something good, make me not be gay anymore. Because living in Aztec society as a gay person is awful. I am bad. Make me different, please. Yes, monotheistic religion and Christianity has really pushed the envelope on that, but it's existed in other cultures untouched by uh, colonialism, too. So there's many deities, good and bad, and even like the Eater of Filth, not really a queer deity, but because of the experience of queerness in society, you make it your own. Wow, I had no idea about that. And that's such an interesting story. Here in Cyprus, where I'm from, we have an ancient Greek Cypriot god slash goddess because mm-hmm. it's hermaphroditus and we so it's it's a blend of hermes god, greek god hermes and aphrodite and they create their own deity called hermaphroditus that's essentially non-binary mm. and it was worshipped in an ancient amathus which is where modern day limassol one of the main uh, like cities here is and there was a whole temple where they celebrated the aphrodite festival every single every single year the aphrodisia mm-hmm. festival and hermaphroditus was honored as well and was basically it was portrayed as a figure of aphrodite with a phallus so it was oh, no. that, that's where hermaphrodite came from essentially as well from that god slash goddess now let's talk about spells because in the book you talk about spells as well you mentioned spells now currently i'm doing research around ancient greek slash egyptian egyptian magic Mm-hmm. And these spells are pretty dark, <laughs> especially when it comes to uh, to love. There are spells about animating the, the statue of Eros and manipulating and bringing someone into your life so you can manipulate them into having sex with you. And there are curse spells, etc. Now, I'm sure there are more positive spells from other cultures around the world. Can you share any queer kind of spells that you're aware of that really drew your attention while you were doing your research? Yes, I do. I do know that a lot of them are very, I mean, queer people have the same desires as straight people and getting something that you can't have is always a big thing. So there's 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 a lot of similar dark ones, a lot of make this person love me, give me this, give me that. Magic is magic and it's very basic at its components around the world. And it's just the cultural flavorings of it. So it's it's not too different. Which I know is not the fun, exciting answer, like, oh, it's not this extreme new things to do. But again, it's everyone's the same. And it's just changing certain elements of it in order to make it happen. So one of the bit full like ancient Greece with Hyacinth, you replace Hyacinth if you want a gay male love spell with uh, straight ones. And it's just little fixes like that that really enhance it. I was just thinking about this because you're right, like the principles of magic are the same across cultures. And they're just used and expressed by different tools and using different deities, etc. But what I've always uh, found is that we always use masculine and feminine energy in, in some form in, in magic. 
How about non-binary people that don't want to use masculine and feminine energy? Are there ways around that? There is. I know in Taoism, it's for Tao queer spells. Um, there's always that dichotomy because a lot of because when you have the image of the yin yang, you have, you know, the yin and the yang represents femininity, masculinity, and the opposing coldness, heat, good, bad, you know, the dichotomies of the world. And how the Taoist magical queer practitioners do it is that they see that all is one because it depends, everything depends on how you look at it. Is the yin yang two separate things combined together to make a whole? Or is it that image separate? So the two yin and the yang, are they together? And that makes it the yin-yang? Or is the one complete circle and we're only seeing the differentness of it? So when they do queer magic spells, they look to nature. And nature is everything when it comes to when it comes to Taoist spells. And in Taoist spells, you just have to realize that everything is natural. Everything is good. Cruelty is natural. You know, the world is a, you know, world is a very tough place. It's tough for animals. It's eat or be eaten. Same thing with queerness. It just is. And you can't put any judgments on it. So even the fact in Taoism, you would say even the fact that you don't want this certain thing, it's denying a certain part of the universe that you are a part of. It's again, it's saying, I don't want this because I am this. I don't want that because I am this. Therefore, I will search out things that are like this. When in reality, we're all the same. And I'm not talking about that like, oh, we're all the same kumbaya, but energetically in the universe, all is one. And if you can see that all is one, then you see the yin yang is one. And therefore, every magic you do is effective. Anything you do will work because you don't have that label upon yourself to differentiate it as I can't do this. I love it. It's essentially the principle of non-duality, like when Mm -hmm. you like disappear the uh, when, when you eliminate essentially the labels of what's masculine and what's feminine and 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 what comes with it both positively and quote-unquote negatively meaning all the negativity that comes with fear you realize that love and fear they're all part of the same whole and therefore you accept it all as an expression of human consciousness and what life is all about it it's true and there's a there's a I forget I forget the story exactly there's a Taoist story of someone who wanted love and they did magic for love and in doing so, they got love, but they got more love than they thought they'd want in the sense that they got a very jealous love. But is that not love? Is not love bitter love? Is it not vengeful love? Is it sweet love? That's all love. But then again, when people say they want love, they look at it as a whole. It can be separated apart. It's the same thing with queer uh, magic around the world. It's what do you want? And if you're separating it, do you want the whole or do you want it separate? Wow, it's a powerful message for acceptance and just uh, accepting whatever comes to you and knowing that there is a lesson there to be learned. And of course, when it comes to manifestation, we can use like our own agency to manifest things. But at the same time, sometimes we manifest a series of steps before we get there. And those steps may not be quote unquote positive steps. They may be like obstacles, but they're not really obstacles if you have that perspective and you realize, you know what, it's part of of the game and there is a lesson for me to learn and that's going to lead me onwards indeed now what is your vision for this book when you wrote this book what did you want this book to do in the world i really just wanted it to inform because it's that book that i never had growing up because again when i'm looking for all these different things you'd find a little piece in this book you find a little piece in that and you just kind of have to remember it. It would have been nice to have one book that I can always look back to and like, oh, these are all the deities. Oh, these are all the spells. Oh, this is what happened in history. 
that would have been so nice. So it was my way of really paying it forward and just curating a lot of things like, look, here's all this stuff. And the book is heavily footnoted. So if you want more on it, here are the books, here are the sources to look at it. You want more of this? Here's that. But it's the perfect springboard for you want to look into queer history around the world, all the queer magic. Here it all is. And to have it all in one place is very convenient. And again, I wish I had that. <laughs> I love the bibliographies in book, especially if I love the subject. I love going back and seeing where the references are and researching that. So thank you for writing such a well-researched book and providing that as well. Now, let us a little bit know how can people get in touch with you? Where can people get the book from? People can get the book from wherever fine books are sold. Definitely Amazon usually always carries it or the publisher's website, Llewellyn. Um, I always say shop local. If you can find it local, help them out. But usually it's all the big places. If you have big bookstores, they usually carry it. If not, ask them and they'll get it to you. They get in touch with me at my website, uh, com. But also via social media, basically all the websites except TikTok. I'm, I'm on it with my name, Tomas Prower. So just search it, Google it, and you should be able to find me fairly easily. And all the links will be available in the show notes below. Tomas, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Oh, same. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any insights or a story to share, message me on Instagram at George Lizos and tell me all about it. I would love to hear from you.